Go ahead and, and turn to Judges chapter 14. Uh, we are skipping ahead. We're not, obviously, we're going we're gonna to tackle Samson. Uh, we're not going to tackle Samson. Nobody tackles Samson. That's just, that's a bad idea. Um, and, and that will conclude our, our series in Judges. Um, it's, been, it's been fun to, to write and study, uh, although I've preached this book uh, a couple of times before in other places. Uh, this time has been especially uh, fun for me to do, and, and I've, I've learned a lot from it, so I hope that you have as well. Um, but things aren't getting any better for Israel <laughs> as we've gone forward in time. Things continue to spiral downward, uh, and that, that is, of course, what we've been saying all along, that this is a it is cyclical, but it's also a spiral downward for, for God's people in the land. Uh, and we just wrapped up Gideon. And, and of course, we didn't say everything that we could have said about Gideon, or did we finish that story completely? It's actually a very tragic ending to uh, the story of Gideon, and that ends with rebellion and fratricide. And, but we get the sense... Well, we know that the people are continuing in their pattern of, of idolatry and they're not only are they continuing to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord as this refrain in the book of Judges has reminded us, but they, they're getting lower and lower in their, their doing what is evil. They are doing more and more evil. And even as they do that, the judges themselves become more and more problematic. The judges themselves are less and less the redeemers that we expect from God to provide for his people. Uh, God seems to be saving his people like despite the judges almost rather than because of them. And then we come to chapter 13 and we have the familiar refrain, and again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and this time it's the Philistines, the, the classic Old Testament villains, right, the, who are oppressing the people, and they are oppressing the people for 40 years, is what chapter 13 says. And then well, the story of Samson starts off differently, and we kind of have the table set for us. We know by this time... What is coming and the pattern that, that this is going to take. But, but here we get some, some, some things that sort of raise our eyebrows. We, get, we start off with a childless couple uh, and an angel that is announcing the birth of a new redeemer that is to come. And already our, our interest is peaked a little bit more than, than usual. And our eyebrows are raised perhaps because, oh, this is new. This seems special. <laughs> and we're told that this Redeemer's life would be set apart by a very special set of vows called Nazarite vows, and that certain rules were to apply to this child that didn't apply to anybody else because this child was to be different in a profound way. This child was to be dedicated wholly to the Lord. So, for instance, that he wasn't to have his hair cut. Uh, he wasn't to drink alcohol, and, and they were to take special care to, to keep him 
uh, ritually and ceremonially clean, which is sort of an Old Testament uh, way of highlighting the defilement that sin represents among God's people. And so there are a whole bunch of different rules that he had to follow to make sure that he maintained the status of being ceremonially clean, even from birth. And so we get the sense that, oh, this kid is going to be different. This is going to be special. Okay, buckle up. This is going to be something that, that is going to be neat to watch as God redeems his people through this set-apart redeemer. And then we read about him. <laughs> and as we go along, we're like, oh, <laughs> it's Samson. So let me read Judges 14 for us, and we'll get a sense of who this character is. Judges 14, verse 1. I'm, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Bear with me. Um, it is a, an interesting story, however. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him, and Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes." And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the, the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife went over to him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? 
She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John Milton wrote uh, an epic poem called Samson Agonistes, which means Samson the Struggler. And each judge, in its own way, is is a story of struggle, right? There's there's struggle throughout the the book of Judges. Uh, Israel is struggling with the consequences of their sin. They're not necessarily struggling with the reality of their sin, but but they're struggling with the consequences of their sin. And each successive generation, as we read about it, kind of ends up a little bit lower than the one before. And... Over and over again, Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then finally, by the end of the book of Judges, it's not that they are doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, but they are actually doing what is right in their own eyes. That is not an improvement. That is not progress. That is regress, if anything. But it's, it's definitely a shift in perspective from the redeeming heavenly father to self-serving man. So Israel is struggling with, their, with the consequences of their own sin. And the judges themselves are struggling with their own character flaws, their own weaknesses. And we kind of see this from the beginning. And remember Barak needing the security of Deborah and, and Gideon needing the, the comfort of, of the signs and... And we skipped over Jephthah, but, but he, was, he was just uh, a rash and kind of a thug. And, and Judges, however, isn't about that. It isn't about them. But Judges is about the strong, relentless impulse of God's people to sin, yes. But more importantly, it's about the strong, relentless impulse of God to save and to redeem his people. And Samson, although he's supposed to be set apart by his birth, his mission, his vows, follows perfectly the pattern of the culture by doing what is right in his own eyes. All the while, however, God is using Samson. He is still at work through Samson's weak actions. We think of Samson as being the classic biblical strong man, right? But he's really weak. So let's look at this in three ways. The weakness of Samson's eyes, the weakness of Samson's appetites, and then the weakness of Samson's resolve. 
So the weakness of Samson's eyes, the weakness of Samson's appetite, and the weakness of Samson's resolve. At the end of chapter 13, in verse 25, we're told that as he grew up, the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. We're not really sure what that means, but we do have an account of what he did next in in chapter 14, verse 1. And it's not, the spirit of the Lord isn't working in the way and direction that we expect. Uh, There's nothing expected about this story. Samson is frankly one of those judges that's a little bit embarrassing. He, He is just sort of this meathead kind of a, a guy. Uh, and in verse four, uh, in chapter 14, he, he goes off in this just unexpected way as we see him, the d- divinely appointed judge, the, the miracle baby set apart by his Nazarite vow with his long hair, his, his freak flag flying, as, as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young might say. Where does he go? What does he do? Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. So he goes down to the town of Timnah, which is nearby Jerusalem, about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. He sees this girl and falls, falls for her immediately. Now just... just Let's kind of be honest here. Uh, he's not falling for her personality, right? He, he didn't, it doesn't say that he, he met her. It just says he saw her and he wanted her. And so he comes back and he demands that his parents go and get her for him as a wife. There's lots of things wrong with this. And we've barely gotten started. We're only in the first two verses of chapter 14. First of all, the kind of the big one is that Israelites were forbidden from marrying uh, the people of the land, outsiders, unbelievers. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Like, this, is not, this is not a racial prohibition. This is a religious prohibition. This is the idolatry of the people will, will find root in the hearts of the Israelites if they intermarry uh, across these religious idolatry boundaries. So that's the first thing that's wrong with this. The, the next thing that's wrong with this is that in that time and culture, sons didn't go to their parents and demand a wife from them. The parents went out and chose the wife that was best for their sons. And this is why Samson's mom and dad pushed back on this. And can't we find you, you know, a nice Jewish girl, someone, you know, from, from among your relatives or, or anybody else of, of the people of God? Isn't there anybody else that's good enough? But the other thing that's wrong with this that kind of would go unnoticed a little bit is that the Philistines seem to be fully integrated and assimilated into the land. They're just, there's a, a Philistine community living 20 miles away from Jerusalem. They had been there for 40 years. They've been ruling Israel for 40 years. And here was an established Philistine family. There's no commentary about, hey, what, like, what are these Philistines doing here? No, it's just here they were. And Samson sees one. There's no, there's no sense that they don't belong or that something has gone wrong in the covenant land, the promise that God has given his people. 
They are surrounded by other established Philistine families living in the promised land. And it seems like the people of God in Israel had fully assimilated the Philistines into their land and into their culture. And that also means their idolatry was a part of what was expected and what was the norm in Israel in Samson's day. So that's also wrong with this picture. There's also something missing from this cycle of the judges. And you may not have noticed it because we didn't read chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, we get the refrain, and again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, referring to worshiping the idols of the Philistines as they ruled over them, or the idols of the the Canaanites that were around them. And the Lord gave them into the hands of an oppressor, so we're checking off the boxes of the cycle of the judges, uh, and they've gone from doing... and as they, they, they're into the hands of the oppressor, and then, and then the Lord raises up uh, a judge, and we get the account of Samson's birth and his vows and all of that. But there was something missing. Did you notice what was missing? The, the people haven't cried out for a redeemer. There's no sense that their oppressors are oppressing them and that they want it to stop. Or that they're even sad now about the consequences of their sin, let alone the actual sins that they're sinning. The people don't cry out for redemption. They've gone from doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord to doing what is right in their own eyes. They've justified it. They no longer recognize the oppression of sin for what it is. Think about this. Deuteronomy 6, 18 God says, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. They've abandoned that. And it's not going well for them in the land, is it? They're being ruled over by foreign powers. They're being oppressed, and they've become comfortable in it. And that's the worst thing. They've accepted it. That's the state of the worldview of Israel at that time. And Samson is a prime example of the Israelite man. He, he is Israel writ small. He's the perfect representation of the people of Israel. He's ruled by his impulses. Dale Ralph Davis says Samson's ruled by his glands. <laughs> his senses control him. He sees, he takes. See girl, want girl, take girl. His own vision governs the path that he takes, and it's towards sin. He's ruled by his impulses. He's he's unteachable. His mother and father in verse 3 say, Is there not a woman among the daughters and relatives among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine, from the the non-covenant people? But Samson says to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Is there, is there grace? (laughs) Where's the redeeming grace? Where's, where's the grace in all of this? It's in verse four. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Wait, what? (laughs) 
This, this Samson wanting what was right in his eyes was really from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord originated that sin in Samson's heart. That was Samson. But the Lord was going to use that sin. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. It may have been okay for the people of Israel to have the Philistines ruling over them. But it wasn't okay for God to have the Philistines ruling over his people. God can and will use Samson and his impulsive, knee-jerk sinfulness. God redeems despite Samson. God redeems despite his people's apathy to their own oppression. God will never let his covenant people remain in their sin, even when that's what we want to do. Even when we're comfortable in our sin, God isn't about to forsake his covenant with his people. That's very good news for us. It means it hurts sometimes as God's disciplining grace comes down upon his people, but it also means that God, our Heavenly Father, hasn't abandoned us because of our sinning. That his faithfulness is true even when we are not. It means also that our redemption comes from totally outside of ourselves and isn't dependent upon what we do to earn it, to be good enough, but rather it's God's working through his spirit to make us alive and to see and to run to the cross. So that's the weakness of Samson's eyes. Let's look at the weakness of Samson's appetite. So off they go. Off they go to have a wedding. His parents cave and are going to get him what he wants. And so he takes his parents to meet this charming young Philistine lass. And, and we have this incident with the lion, which is, you know, as far as judges things go, is not that weird, but is really weird if you think about it a little bit. But it's it really what it is is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of, of Samson's power that is imbued to him by the Holy Spirit. And verse 6 says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Again, like the Spirit... <laughs> When Jesus said the spirit blows where it wills and you don't know where it's going or where it's coming from, I mean, that's kind of what's going on here. The spirit does what is unexpected and shows Samson himself his own strength and what he is capable of doing. And, and he gives Samson the ability to, to kill this lion as easily as you might kill a baby goat. This lion is about as threatening to Samson as the spirit is upon him as a baby goat would be. We don't have much experience with baby goats, although some of us do. But not a very threatening creature, right? And a few days later, here's where it gets weird. He passes by the rotting carcass of the lion, and he notices a beehive uh, has taken up residence in the lion. And so he goes in and robs the hive of the honey and scoops out this massive handful, you know, pick a few maggots out of there, and goes along and eats the honey that he just scooped out of the dead animal. Then he meets up with his parents and he gives them some. (laughs) Now, 
there's a bit of humor to that. Like, I think so. But there's also some, some tragedy going on here. He, he scraped it into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate, but did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. I mean, this is his appetites ruling. Apart from being just, you know, gross, his contact with the dead lion made him ceremonially unclean. It broke his, his vows, his Nazarite vows, by, by coming into contact with this dead thing and then eating this gross dead lion honey as he went along. And the, the angel demanded that his parents like dedicate him to the Lord before he was born. And Samson was under this special vow that, that really what it meant was he was not his own, that he belonged to the Lord in a special intentional way. He was God's man bound by a special vow. And true to his nature, Samson saw the comb of honey in the lion, for some reason thought it looked good. He desired it. He took it. There's never any indication that there's any hesitation whatsoever on the part of Samson about breaking this vow. But despite Samson's unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Not only did Samson make himself unclean, but in sharing the honey with his parents, he passed that uncleanliness over to them as well. <laughs> Do you, Samson make you long for Jesus? Does this Redeemer make you long for the true Redeemer of Israel? Samson longed for food. And Jesus says, I have food. And that food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus, Jesus comes to his unclean people. And rather than receiving our uncleanness in himself... He gives his cleanliness to his people. Rather than being corrupted, Jesus purifies. The Lord is still saving us. Verse 4, the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God was using the sin of Samson to save his people. And this incident with the lion, it provides this sort of backdrop and background for this riddle that he's about to ask. And so I think that's why it's there. But it also gave Samson this, this sense of God's spirit and power and presence. And that God was using him and going to use him because he had been told. He knew what his mission was. He didn't seem to care about it. But God was using the sin of Samson to save his people what is right in the Lord's sight is aimed at our good and his glory. Samson sees what he wants and he says, my will be done. But the redeemer that Samson points us to, the redeemer that we long for, the redeemer that God ultimately provides in Christ Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sees the cup and he looks into the cup of wrath that he was to drain and drink fully and he did not want it 
He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But he saw the cup, and instead of saying, my will be done, he said to his heavenly Father, your will be done. He did it because he's the Redeemer. He's the true set-apart one. He's the one God sent to save, ultimately, his people from their sins. So the, the weakness of Samson's eyes, the weakness of Samson's appetite... Let's look at the the weakness of Samson's resolve in verse 10 through 13. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there. So for so the young men used to do, as soon as the people saw him, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is when the seven days of the feast, within the seven days of the feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. Now, this is potentially a good deal for them because, you know, they'll each get a new change of clothes, but also the reward on Samson is, is and the cost to Samson is, is much higher. But Samson, if he wins, he'll get 30 changes of clothes. Uh, and so here's the riddle, you know. And he says this riddle about the, the eater and the, the strong, and, and Samson is impulsive, He's unable to control his appetites. And now, here he is being materialistic, too. He is seeking to enrich himself at the expense of these, these 30 rent-a-friends that have shown up to his wedding feast. And how is his resolve broken? If the incident with the lion was sort of a foreshadowing of Samson's strength and power when the Spirit rushes upon him then this is also a bit of foreshadowing in the, the strength and power of, of a beautiful girl over Samson's resolve because that's exactly what happens. These, these friends enlist the help of his new bride to seduce the, the answer to the riddle out of Samson and naturally uh, she succeeds. <laughs> and once again, Samson ruled by his glands, a pattern and ultimately his downfall. But also, he refuses to learn from these mistakes, doesn't he? But out of this, God is going to do something. And again, it's not what we would expect. It's not the story of redemption that we would write. It's not, it's not how we thought God would operate, but it's the appetizer of God's judgment against the Philistines using Samson as his instrument. And so they figure out the riddle. And in verse 19, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. He uses Samson's rashness. God uses Samson's temper, his anger, to redeem people. This isn't the redemption story we would write. Samson isn't the man we would pick for the job. He's completely controlled by his own fleshly desires and, and sight. 
He has no regard for his vows or his mission. And we've seen no indication so far that he even acknowledges God at all. And yet twice we're told that the Spirit of God came upon him and it rushes upon him and imbues him with this strength and ability. God is, God is using Samson to separate his people from the Philistines. He is breaking apart the very comfort that the Israelites enjoyed in living among the people by driving this wedge between the covenant people of God and the Philistines using the anger and the violence of this man, Samson. Israel has become too comfortable in living in an idolatrous culture and they're in danger of being assimilated. And so Samson goes, and in order to pay his debts, he relieves 30 Philistines of their need for clothing forever (laughs) and gives those articles of clothing to his companions. It's almost at this point, like, I'm not sure what to say. Like, this isn't nice. God doesn't always use the nice. He doesn't doesn't always use the righteous or the godly or the, the truly reformed or those who look like us or vote like us or think like us. Like if God is saying, I will not be constrained in the ways in which I will redeem my people. I will not be put in a box. Not even our own sinning will stop God from saving his people. Like, that's good news. And the mercy of God and the determination of God to save his people, despite our sinning, ought to make us want to live within the boundaries of God's safe path of obedience for his people even more. Because God is willing to go to such lengths to drag us back to himself and to redeem us and to love us. That as as that good news constitutes more and more of how I see myself as a redeemed person, that should drive me more and more into God's embrace. It should make my activity want to look more and more like God's character. The character of God that causes him to redeem. The love of God that causes him to pursue sinners. It also makes, I thought about Romans 8, 28, which is a very, you know, it's one of those verses that everybody knows and, and quotes a lot and, and is, a, is a wonderful verse. But it also kind of puts it in a little bit different perspective. All things work together for the good of those who love him. God will stop at nothing to save his people. And exhibit A is set on the table in front of us. God went to every lengths to save his broken and sin-sick people by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so 
that he might condemn sin in the flesh. That Jesus fulfilled perfectly all the righteous requirements of the law for us so that we might walk not according to our flesh as Samson did, but according to the Spirit that now dwells within us because of the victory of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your redeeming love. Thank you for the symbols that are set before us this morning that point us to that truth. Thank you for the reality of the Savior that, that uh, it demonstrates and fulfills and is, is that truth. Lord, thank you for calling us as your people while we were still sinners, while we still lived in the weakness of our eyes and our appetites and our resolve. Lord, you loved us and you have determined from before the creation of the world to save us as your, your people. Lord, help our lives to be a testimony, not of our goodness, but of yours so that we might walk in the reality of your saving and redeeming work. We pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.